Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, there was a lady uh, whose husband passed away when they were late in their late 50s. Now they had been looking forward to their retirement together, which was going to be just a few years away. She would now have to retire all by herself. Now, that wasn't devastating enough. Not long after his death, she discovered to her horror that her husband had actually left her in a terrible financial state. You see, he had taken out uh, several loans without her knowledge. Uh, Loans that she would now have to pay off. Then on top of that, he also made other very foolish uh, financial decisions. So her retirement plans has gone up in flames. She would have to work a lot, 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 lot longer than expected. She was absolutely furious with him, as you can imagine. She felt so betrayed by her husband. Over time, her anger turned into bitterness, first against her husband and then against God. God, why have you done this to me? This is not fair. And she became a very unpleasant person to be with and became a very unhappy person. Her life had virtually gone from full to empty. Just like Naomi, a character in the book of Ruth uh, that we've been exploring in the past couple of weeks. And that's the title of my message this morning. When your life goes from full to empty, remember. There are three things I like us to remember. First, Naomi's honest faith. Secondly, Ruth's trusting faith. And thirdly, God's hidden but active hen upon our lives. But here's a brief recap of what we've looked at so far. The story set in the period during one of Israel's darkest days in their history, known as uh, the days of the judges, about 1,000 years before Jesus was born, were introduced to a family. Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilian. During a severe famine in Israel, they understandably leave Bethlehem, Bethlehem, their hometown, in search of a better life in Moab, a country to the east of the Jordan River, traditionally enemies of Israel. They learn very quickly, though, that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Tragically, uh, not long after they they arrive in Moab, uh, Elimelech dies, but her two sons marry two local gals, Orpah and Ruth. And things are starting to look up again for Naomi, so she thought. After settling in Moab for 10 years, tragedy strikes again. This time, her two sons die. Now, what we have now are all three women uh, have been turned into widows. Now, when she heard that the famine had broken in Israel, Naomi decides to move back home. There was nothing for her in Moab. You know, Moab just triggers sorrow and grief and pain. 
so you know, naturally, she is looking forward to going home. But at the same time, there's nothing really going for her at home as well. But very quickly into the trip, uh, Ruth pleads, I mean, sorry, Naomi pleads with Orpah and Ruth to remain in Moab, where with their stronger cultural and family ties, they would have a much better chance of starting over all, all over again, rather than following her into a bleak future. Orpah reluctantly agrees, but Ruth objects to that idea, telling Naomi in verse 16 to 17, chapter 1 of Ruth, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Such loving words of loyalty, of commitment, and love. And you can see why the book of Ruth is called the most beautiful short story ever written. An old scholar puts it this way, there is nothing in human literature more beautiful than Ruth's address to her mother-in-law. It is sublime, like the way he puts it. In response, Naomi takes Ruth with her to Bethlehem. And we continue the story from verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Limelech. When Naomi and Ruth set foot in Bethlehem, the whole town is buzzing with this excitement. After all, Naomi had been away for 10 years. But note that they're also in disbelief and in shock because of her physical appearance. Undoubtedly, her grief, her loss, her suffering have all taken their toll on Naomi. They remembered her as lovely. They remembered her as pleasant. But that is what her name means. But now she looks hard, she looks forlorn, she looks destitute. In Israel, names were more than just a way of distinguishing one person from another, but description of a person's character and their destiny. Now this fact was not lost on Naomi and explains her curt response to them. 
Stop calling me pleasant. Please stop calling me lovely. Nothing could be further from reality. Nothing could be further from the truth. When I went away, I had a husband. I had two sons. I was full of life. The future was bright ahead. I liked nothing. But now I have returned as a childless widow with nothing but the clothes on my back. Call me Mara. That's more apt because my life feels bitter. And that's the first thing we see about Naomi, her pain, her anguish, her anger, her suffering. The second thing we note is she blames God for her miserable and impoverished life. She references God four times in verses 21 and 22. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi was saying something you and I have said and felt, or something we might be saying right now about God, or maybe something we will say and feel about God in the future. God, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. It feels like you've got a vendetta against me. Notice how Naomi, very focused on her pain, so much so she fails to acknowledge Ruth and her presence. Ruth is invisible, but not for long, because God intervenes. And that's the third thing we note. See, in the final chapter, in the final verse of chapter one, we have for the first time the author's remarks offering a two-part summary report of chapter one. The first part concludes the chapter's main events, namely that Naomi has returned home. But Ruth, who has been shunted off stage by Naomi's preoccupation with her lament, is given a prominent reintroduction that underlines a foreign origin. Verse two literally reads, Naomi returned along with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, she who returned from the territory of Moab. And in the second part of the author's summary report, he subtly introduces events to come in chapter two in which we will see God's providence for the two widows and so much more. You see, it's no coincidence that they arrive in Bethlehem just in time for the barley harvest. The timing is absolutely providential. You see, to survive, Ruth ends up in the part of uh, the field so happened to be owned by Boaz, Naomi's relative by marriage, to gather grain. That is where she meets Boaz, her future husband, you see. If it wasn't for the barley harvest, that meeting would not have occurred. Naomi and Ruth's lives would go from empty to full again. But much more significant than that is 
In three weeks' time, when Ashley covers chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, you will see how it is God who is behind this divine meeting that would have eternal consequences. When your life goes from full to empty, or maybe your reality is your life never feels full. It always hovers around the empty side of the gauge. God, I, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever experienced fullness, really. My life kind of, I go from one struggle to another. I'm asking for breakthroughs. I'm just not seeing any. I'm just struggling from day to day, from month to month. Maybe that's more your reality. Whatever it is, I like to suggest three things from the text to hold on to, to remember. The first thing is to remember Naomi's example in being real with God about her pain and sorrow and struggles. I mean, let us not, first of all, let us not be too harsh with Naomi like some Bible commentators have done for railing against God and for her failure to acknowledge Ruth's presence in Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1. You know, I do think we need to cut her some slack because after all, she's gone through the most horrible of experiences of burying her husband and her two sons in a foreign land with little hope uh, for survival. Instead, as one Bible commentator suggests, it seems better to understand that Naomi is not evidencing little faith, rather with the freedom of faith that ascribes full sovereignty to God, she takes God so seriously that she resolutely and openly voices her complaint to God, much like Job, if you remember, and much like many contributors and writers in the book of Psalms, like King David, and we're gonna look at one of his Psalms just shortly. On a personal level, I'm still coming to terms with uh, someone I've known for many years, supported, uh, you know, in terms of uh, friendship, and regularly prayed with, and been a friend for years to this person who turns out to be a two-faced liar Quite literally, uh, my friendship tank, if you like, went from full to empty within 48 hours. Now, is there any room in my faith in God that allows me to tell him the rage that I feel, the anger that I feel at this person's betrayal? That I want God to actually come down hard on this person God, deal with this person, this two-faced liar. Or does God shun such honesty because it's an unchristian thing to do? You know, you're a Christian. You shouldn't be feeling these sorts of things. Remember, deny yourself, take up the cross. Well, just recently, maybe two or three weeks ago, I came across Psalm 55, written by David. He begins in verse 1. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. 
My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked, for they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. And it turns out at least one of the enemies talking about there is a friend. Verse 12, and an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, nameless, but he knows who the person is. It is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked among the worshipers. He gets really angry. And then he says, God, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive, alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. See that? God, <laughs> this friend of mine, this so-called friend. Who needs friend like that? Or in Psalms 59, verse 4, King David again cries out to God, wake up! Don't you like that? Wake up, God. Are you awake? Are you asleep? What's going on? Wake up. I would like to suggest to us that this psalm and many other unchristian psalms like it should be seen as evidence that God is perfectly okay with our total honesty with him in prayer. Not that kind of total, total honesty necessarily with one another. I think sometimes, yeah, that's unwise. In fact, sometimes that's gossip, that's slandering, but with God. This psalm and many others like it would suggest that we can come honestly before him, bear our heart and our souls. Nothing is hidden from him anyway, so why are you trying to pretend you don't feel the Christ, unchristian stuff? Just bear your soul. To God. I think it is vital to our physical, to our psychological, and our spiritual health that we do this. And besides, our pain and struggles are not going away just because we don't want to own it, face it, or talk about it. They remain, and they influence us in negative ways until we deal with them honestly. It is only when we do that we grow so when your life goes from full to empty, remember Naomi's freedom in expressing honestly and freely her pain and struggles to God. The second thing to remember when our life goes from full to empty is Ruth's example in the way she takes full responsibility for her life and entrusts her life to God. Now while our pain is never to be minimized, and while self-absorption in the midst of pain is understandable, we have to be careful that we don't let it morph into bitterness. Because once bitterness takes hold, it will sour our attitude towards God. It will sour our attitude towards his word. It will sour our attitude towards people. It will taint our outlook and everything else in life, just like the lady in the story I started out the sermon with. I mean, I've seen that happen once too many times to, do, to good people. It is like their pain trumps everything else. 
It is like their pain becomes an excuse for everything they do or don't do. And Sue and I have the misfortune of knowing someone like this. We could see, okay, that the, the, the transformation was physical. We could see with our own eyes this person, how she changed from a soft and gentle person to becoming someone who was very selfish and very self-absorbed. You could no longer reason with her. And Naomi was in danger of becoming such a person. She was so preoccupied with her pain that she completely ignores Ruth, the presence of Ruth altogether, who's also in pain and grief. She lost her husband too. See? But Naomi completely ignores it. And the other thing that Naomi ignores is the fact that she had left Moab. She's now in a foreign land amongst foreign people with no one she knows except Naomi. She's a total stranger. No awareness, complete obliviousness to Ruth and her, and her feelings. You, you see that? It's, you see, oh, my pain, my pain, my pain. And Ruth is standing just quietly right there next to her. And that's what bitterness do, can do to you. All you see is your pain. And your pain beats everybody else's. Trumps everybody else's. And in Naomi's failure to acknowledge Ruth, she had lost sight of God's goodness to her. You see, God had not brought her back from Moab to Bethlehem empty, which she claimed. That's not true. God blessed her with an amazing and incredible daughter-in-law, Ruth. Right? Verse 16 and 17, her words of commitment and love and loyalty. Didn't see that? She lost sight of God's goodness because she was preoccupied with her pain. And Ruth would be the person through whom God will use to bless Naomi and restore Naomi. Thankfully, Naomi sees this and steps out by faith to trust God again. But in complete contrast, we have Ruth who, who rejects every temptation to feel sorry for herself. And you can understand that if she felt sorry for herself, right? She's lost a husband. She's in a totally foreign land. You could say, yeah, we get you. But she rejects every temptation to feel sorry for herself and plays the victim. She had said to Naomi back in Moab, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She decides not to live in the past. Instead, in God, she will take full responsibility for her life and entrust her life and future to Yahweh. She displays not intellectual faith, but trusting faith in God. She surrenders the control of her life, her plans, and her future to God's loving kindness. So in trusting faith, she goes out to the fields 
at tremendous risk to herself and asked God to grant her favor so, so that she could gather sufficient leftover grain to feed Naomi and her. Because they were starving. If she hadn't gone out, they, she, they would have starved to death. So when your life goes from full to empty, remember Naomi, uh, Ruth's trusting faith. She takes responsibility and refuses to play the victim. When you find yourself going from full to empty, number three, take heart. And remember that God is actively working behind the scenes for his sake and for your good. And this is what we see in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. Even though most of chapter 1 of Ruth is filled with grief and despair, the end of the chapter begins with God bringing about something beautiful, something new, something hopeful. God is actively at work. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 16, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Psalms 121, verses 1 to 4, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In Psalm 68, verse 19, King David declares, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. You like that? I like that. He daily bears our burdens. As tempting as it is to approach life, with human logic and try to figure out and try to understand why your life has gone from full to empty, don't. Put your trust in God's perfect character and ways. I love David's poetic description of God's response to his prayers in Psalm 18. King David is not in a good place at all. And he cries out to God in verse 6, in my distress, I cried out to my God for help. And then we read God's response. Verse 6, part 2, from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. And the, you have to use your imagination. The foundations of the mountain shook. It trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and he came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. Verse 12, 13, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into the spacious space. Spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. What a vivid, poetic picture of God's eager and determined response. It's a bookmark, Psalms 18. Every time you pray, your prayer moves God. Your prayer touches his heart. 
Now, we know that, that King David is obviously not describing what he saw with his physical eyes, but his eyes of faith. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, though it is often hidden from view, know that God is powerfully, intimately, and passionately working out his good purpose and for our highest good. This is an absolute Hold on to that fact. Hold on to that truth that God's hidden hand is never off the wheel for one nanosecond, even though it feels like the complete opposite. And there is no greater demonstration of this truth than the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Save us from sin and death by dying on the cross in our place. After God delivers his final message through the prophet Malachi, he was silent for a period of roughly 400 years, not a peep from God, until the angel Gabriel's appearance to Mary, telling her that she would miraculously conceive Jesus, the Son of the Most High, in her womb. Nothing for 400 years. What do you make of it? Was God asleep? Did God go AWOL? No. In Galatians 4.4, we read, in the fullness of time, in his time, in the fullness of time, at his perfect time, God sent forth his son. Not one day later, and not one day earlier. In the 400 years, God was not asleep. God was far from asleep at the wheels. He was actively working behind the scenes to bring about the birth of his son for the salvation of the world. So in coming to the Lord's table this morning to eat and drink together, sacred communal practice ordained by Jesus in the life of his church, we declare that truth. We declare that truth. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, Lord, I trust you. Though my heart and flesh cannot see and cannot feel your closeness and cannot feel your salvation at this time, the cross is the demonstration that what I'm feeling does not reflect who you are. You're the complete opposite of what I'm feeling. You're the complete opposite of what I'm thinking. I think you don't care, but the opposite is true. You do care. I think you have abandoned me, but the opposite is the truth. I shall never leave you nor forsake you. And we have the Lord's table to remind us of that. We remember together at the Lord's table the words of the new song we sung earlier and we'll sing after communion. The walls of sin and shame that were like prisons that we couldn't escape from, they're rubbles now. Amen? They're rubbles now. The giants called death and grave that Stand in our way like mountains. Well, those giants are dead too. How? Jesus came. Jesus 
died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day, now lives in us through the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus meant when he said, when you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember that I'm for you, not against you. My hands are on the wheels. I am working. I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. I delight in you. It is like the chorus of the song we learn. Remember me. This is what I did. I love you. Remember me. This is what I did. I saved you. At the Lord's table, we're reminded that when our lives go from full to empty in our darkest moments, God never stops working behind the scenes for his good purpose and for our good. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.